Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. There are so many amazing stories in sports, some so hard to believe that, as the saying goes, you couldn't make it up. Today, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at one of those stories. The incredible story of Bill Barilko, who played just five years in the NHL and led the Toronto Maple Leafs to four Stanley Cup championships. But it's what happened after the fourth Stanley Cup that makes this story unlike any other you have ever heard. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Welcome to another edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes. In just a moment, Kevin Shea, hockey historian and author of several great hockey books, including a terrific biography on Bill Barilko, aptly named Barilko, will be joining me in just a moment. Now, you know, I used to work for the NHL, and that's where I first learned the story of Bill Barilko, who was a defenseman for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I thought now would be a great time to bring you this story as the Stanley Cup playoffs continue. In fact, it was a pretty good playoff for the Toronto Maple Leafs, who lost in six games to the Washington Capitals in this, the 50th anniversary season of the last time the Leafs won the Stanley Cup championship. You see, Barilka was called up to the Maple Leafs towards the end of the 1946-47 season, and he helped lead the Leafs to the Stanley Cup championship. His second season is when he established himself as one of the hardest-hitting defensemen in the NHL and again helped lead the Leafs to the Stanley Cup championship. His third season, Barilko helped the Leafs become the first team to win three straight Stanley Cup championships. His fourth season, Toronto stumbled a little, but the Leafs came back in the 1950-51 season to win their fourth cup in five years. Every game of that series went into overtime, and in the fifth and final game, Barilko scored the game winner. He was the heart and soul of the team. He was a big, hard-hitting defenseman. He was a great teammate, terrific, fun-loving person, and by all accounts, a perfect gentleman off the ice, too. During the summer after that thrilling overtime game winner, Barilka went on a fishing trip in northern Ontario, Canada with his friend and dentist, Dr. Henry Hudson. Yes, a descendant of the Henry Hudson. And the small plane that Hudson owned, Ed Flew, crashed, killing both he and Barilka. It was the summer of 1951, and that plane wouldn't be found until the summer of 1962, 11 years later. After an incredible search that included the Royal Canadian Air Force, countless private planes, and the Department of Land and Forestry, the search was halted and it turned up nothing. During that 11-year period, the Leafs fell on hard times. Here, they had won four out of five championships. Barilko vanishes, and boom! The Leafs don't win another cup. That is until the spring of 1962. The Leafs win beating the Montreal Canadiens, and then just two months later, 
The plane is found along with the skeletal remains of Barilko and Hudson still strapped into their seats. Now, before we get into my interview with Kevin Shea, I just want to let you know how you can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes. You can check us out on patreon.com backslash sportsfh. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com backslash sportsfh. This is where you can offer your support to Sports Forgotten Heroes. A dollar a month, five dollars, ten dollars a month. It all goes a long way. This is where you can become a supporter of the show a sponsor of the show, a producer, an executive producer. Heck, you can even learn how you can ask a question of a future guest. That's Sports Forgotten Heroes on Patreon.com. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash SportsFH. Yes, we could certainly use your support. You could also follow Sports Forgotten Heroes at SportsFH.com. Love to hear from you, and this is where we'll take suggestions for future shows. You can follow us on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Twitter at SportsFHeroes. You can search for our page on Facebook, Sports Forgotten Heroes. Now, back to today's podcast, and here's my interview with hockey historian and author Kevin Shea. Kevin, thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for the opportunity. It's always fun to talk hockey. Hey, so why don't we start where the story becomes, well, a story. Tell me about the trip, the events leading up to it, how Bill's mother and sister really didn't want him to go, and the kind of risky pilot that Dr. Henry Hudson was. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right on all fronts here. So as as the legend has gone, and we certainly, you know, those of us who are hockey historians know, Bill Barocos was the unlikely... Uh, scoring hero of the 1951 Stanley Cup Toronto Maple Leafs. Scored the overtime goal against the Montreal Canadiens, backhander over the shoulder of Jerry McNeil in goal, and the Leafs win their fourth Stanley Cup championship in five years. It's it's an unbelievable dynasty at the time and an unbelievable story about Bill Barilko. But so, so it goes. Uh, Bill had a, a store in Toronto along with his brother, his brother Alex it was Brilco Brothers, and they sold, of all things, uh, appliances and stereos and records, those 45s and albums that uh, we had or our parents or maybe even our grandparents had. <laughs> but he also sold fishing equipment, which was uh, ironic because Bill loved to fish, but he hated the taste of fish. So it was a sport for Bill. So he spent some time at his store in, in uh, Toronto. And, uh, you know, because of who he was, he couldn't buy a, a, a lunch or a meal if he tried because it was always somebody glad handing him on the back. Hey, way to go, Billy. Let me buy you a bite to eat or let me buy you a beer or whatever. And he lived just down the street from uh, from where his store was, too. But as was his his trade every summer, he wanted to go back and uh, and visit Timmins where his, his mother lived, his sister Anne lived, and where his buddies lived as well. So he went back to Timmins that summer and and enjoyed some time with the, his pals and, and just catching up and, and enjoying some downtime after a pretty tumultuous but exciting uh, exciting spring. So late in the uh, in the summer, he had already planned to go back to, to training camp, and there was going to be a going-away party for him before he left. He was also going to stop in at his girlfriend's parents' cottage on the way and just get last-minute uh, last visits in before his his uh, next season began, the 51-52 season began for the Maple Leafs. But his dentist, Dr. Henry Hudson, said, Hey, Billy, you want to, uh, want to go on one last fishing trip? 
Well, it turns out Bill was about the third or fourth choice at that time. A National Hockey League Hall of Famer, uh, Alan Stanley, had been asked, but you know he'd been several times already, so he deferred to Bill. Um, Bill's brother Alex was asked, but he deferred to Bill as well. And actually, they were going to go with Dr. Hudson's brother Lou, who was a, a an Olympic hockey star and a doctor in town as well. But uh, they found that the weight was a little bit too much. So it just decided that it was just going to be Dr. Henry Hudson, who was the pilot and, and a dentist in Timmins, and his pal Bill Barocco. And they were going to go fishing in, in northern Quebec. So Dr. Hudson had his own little uh, little plane and a little pontoon plane. And you know, he was a bit of a reckless flyer. People acknowledge that. But he was well-known in the city, and, and he had a cottage in the North Bay area, which was you know just north of uh, Toronto a couple of hours um, by flight. And uh, so he was he was a frequent flyer as well. They'd embark on this trip and they were going to leave on Friday. And and Bill's mother had this ominous feeling. You know, she her husband had died on a Friday, so she didn't like anything to do with Fridays. And she she said, Billy, please don't go. Please don't go. And his sister implored him, you know, what are, what are you going there for? You know, why? You know, training camp's about to start. You got this going away party. You don't need to go on one last fishing trip. But, you know, Bill was determined and, and he certainly uh, felt the lure of <laughs> fishing with his sure. pal. So they decided to go after all. So they, the, uh, his sister packed a lunch for him and, and gave him a little bit of money because he, he was a little short at that time, only just because he didn't get a chance to go to the bank. His mom wouldn't say goodbye because she she just had a terrible feeling about Friday, and the two of them took off for for Seal River in northern Quebec. And as uh, as we understand, they had a terrific, terrific time. They caught all kinds of Arctic char, which they both cherished and you know, Dr. Hudson loved apparently it was the taste of salmon, uh, taste similar to salmon, and they really liked it. It would put up a struggle, so it was quite a challenge for fishermen as well. And they caught a number, and, and then they had to come back for Dr. Hudson's dental practice and Bill's going away party and training camp, and they refueled on the way, and that's the last that they were seen. They were supposed to come back and, and uh, be back on the Sunday night, but they didn't arrive. But that wasn't all that unusual Dr. Hudson, you know, sometimes if, if the weather was bad or if the fishing was great, then he, they would stay an extra day. And his patients were patient at that because uh, this was not uncommon. And the same with Bill. You know, they didn't want to take any chances. And so when Bill didn't show up for his going away party, it wasn't devastating to anybody. It was just like, hey, I guess they must have had a, an especially good trip. So it wasn't until the Monday that and nobody saw them that people started to ask some questions and uh, and. Neither one of them had returned and nobody had seen them and, you know, started to put up the warning signs and start to look. And, you know, as the days uh, went on, all of a sudden they, they called in all kinds of people to look, including the uh, the Canadian Air Force. And, in fact, they mounted the largest uh, single um, search for an individual that has ever been taken place at that time and and uh, couldn't find any sign of, of the plane, nor Barocco or, or uh, Dr. Hudson. That's when the rumors started. Now, rumors start on every occasion, but this one was pretty <laughs> pretty ridiculous, to be very candid. Uh, Bill's parents came from what we would t today consider to be uh, Russian immigrants. And um, so people were, were conjecturing, you know what, I bet you Bill has gone on some secret uh, secret plane and, and not plane necessarily on a secret play to uh, to teach Russian boys how to play hockey and improve <laughs> their wares. 
And then others were thinking, well, Dr. Hudson's a dentist, and he would use gold in the fillings. And I bet you what he's done is is he's uh, found a, a gold mine there, and he's got some gold, and he's smuggling it home, and he's going to take it to New York and have it processed and make a ton of money. And, well, it was just so ludicrous. It was so ludicrous. But anyway, those were the kinds of, of uh, rumors that, that began that way. And it went on and on. And nobody, nobody found any sight of, of Barocco, Hudson, or the plane that they were in. Well, the hockey season started, and and uh, you know they kept the Bills number five and his equipment in his stall. Um, Doctor Hudson's practice at that point had moved to another dentist, and and so uh, things continued on. But you know life had to go on for others as well. And it wasn't until 1962, the same year the the Leafs next won the Stanley Cup after Bill Barocco's goal in 1951. So 11 years later, they had won the Stanley Cup, and shortly thereafterwards. Uh, a pilot, just by by luck and and uh, good timing, was in the area, not looking for the crash site, but looking for something else. A, a helicopter pilot, actually, and uh, and happened to see a glint of metal in the in the vast forest north of Cochrane, Ontario, which is northern Ontario, uh, somewhere north of Timmins, where Bill was from, and circled it. Didn't know how to to mark it, so he he threw toilet paper out as he was circling, just to try to try to uh, mark the area. And so he could come back later on. And when they did, about a month later, they had to, to fly in about a, a mile from where the site was. But they landed there and, and marched through the, the muskeg and swamp and the and the thick forest. And they were able to find the the plane that belonged to Dr. Hudson, almost perpendicular in the in the ground and the skeletal bodies of Bill Barilko and Dr. Henry Hudson. Incredible. It's just a, a, an incredible story. I got to ask. He didn't like fish, as you had mentioned. So, what was it? Was it the was it the lure of a uh, of the athletic competition to catch fish? What was it that he had to go fishing with Doctor Hudson? As I understand, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, he he enjoyed the sport of fishing, the the challenge, you know, man against fish, and 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 yeah. But he found it very relaxing too. You know, Bill was just a an easy, easy going guy. He loved to go to cowboy movies. He he uh, he loved just to take it easy and hang out with his friends, and he loved the sport of fishing because it it just really was relaxing. And when you did feel that little tug on your line, all of a sudden, then that's when the uh, the competitiveness began. So I, I guess that's exactly what it was. I guess we'll never truly know, but I do know through that that it was relaxing for him and it was a challenge. We're going to come back to uh, that tragic uh, uh, event in just a moment. But first, let's focus a little on Bill's career. It's not like it was a foregone conclusion that he would ever play in the NHL. As you have written, he was not a great skater, but he could hit. He went out west to play in the Pacific Coast Hockey League for the Hollywood Wolves. Tell us about his time there, how much he enjoyed it, and then the circumstances that ultimately led to his call-up to the Leafs, which at the time, at least the way I understand it, he thought he was being called up to play for Pittsburgh of the AHL. Yeah. Well, you know, Bill Barocco wasn't even the best hockey player in his family. His brother Alex was actually a better hockey player than he was. But Bill worked really, really hard and, and through circumstances, and again, good timing, he was fortunate enough to to work his way through the ranks, and and he was signed to the Hollywood Wolves of the Pacific Coast Hockey League, as you mentioned. Now, 
at that time, they would have been a fourth-tier affiliate of the Toronto Maple Leafs of the National Hockey League. So the Maple Leafs were in the National Hockey League. Their American Hockey League affiliate was the Pittsburgh Hornets. They had Tulsa in the Central Hockey League. And down below them was a minor pro league called the Pacific Coast Hockey League. And their affiliate, very loosely affiliated, was the Hollywood Wolves. There were a few players on the uh, on the Hollywood Wolves who had spent some time with the uh, the Leafs. There was a guy named Cowboy Anderson, nicknamed Cowboy Anderson, who had played with the uh, the Brooklyn Americans and and became property of the uh, of the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs, although never played with them. And he went down there and he became a real mentor for Bill. Coach of the team was Bob Gracie, who had won the Stanley Cup with the Leafs in 1932. And there were other players who had had a sniff with the Leafs or were prospects as well. But uh, Bill gets sent down to the Hollywood Wolves, and so he's there in the 1946-40, sorry, 1945-46 season, and and became an instant darling because he was one of those players who left it out all on the ice, and and to use you know a more current expression, but every every shift that he played, you know, he was he was taking the body, he would drop his gloves if need be. He wasn't a prolific scorer, but he was one of those fan darlings that people just embraced. The other thing about him was that he was a good-looking boy. And so, as often happens with publicists, and I should say that uh, with a, a grain of salt because I'm one myself, but <laughs> you know, you sometimes look for opportunities and, and you look for stories. And so, because he was a good-looking boy and an athlete in town, publicists from the hockey team were looking to get him into the paper, so they would pair him with Hollywood starlets who were looking for uh, for some press as well. And it went the other way too. The the film publicists were looking to get their film actresses into the papers, so they would get him uh, get them with a, a popular athlete. So Bill was often squiring very attractive ladies, which he certainly was not adverse to. They weren't dates per se, although I'm sure that a few of them turned into dates, but it was just more of of uh, an appearance and, and it was a chance for him to go on a, a nice evening that was paid for by somebody else. So Bill got known as Hollywood Bill Barocco and he was often in the papers and he was often with these beautiful women and in the sports pages and in the, in the uh, entertainment pages of the newspapers as well. So it was a great opportunity for Bill. You have to remember that before he flew there too, he'd never been on a plane. He his his scope of of interest was pretty much based around where you could walk or ride your bike in the Timmins area for the most part. Wow. So this was a big big deal and for a guy who loved cowboy movies, this was the 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 greatest thing that could ever happen to him. So let's, so he plays the 45-46 season with the Hollywood Wolves and has a good season. Uh, he plays the next season with them as well, and, and the same sort of thing. His, his popularity escalates. But just to kind of put things in perspective, too, when he gets called up to the, uh, to the Maple Leafs, he, he telephones his mom and his sister. And, uh, and he lets them know, and they were terribly let down. Oh, Bill, we feel so bad for you. Well, they didn't understand. They thought that Hollywood was the pinnacle for anybody, for Bill to be in Hollywood was like the best. And it wasn't until friends of, of his sisters explained to him in the schoolyard the next day that Bill was, was going to be on Hockey Night in Canada radio and his name was going to be spoken by Foster Hewitt that she finally twigged to the idea that, oh my goodness, this is the big time for Bill. They had no idea. They thought it was a demotion for him to have to come back to Toronto. Not to come back to, but to go to Toronto. So it's really funny how it all worked. They must have been the only two people in all of Canada who had no idea <laughs> that this was a promotion. They absolutely had to be. You're absolutely right. But you have to think very, very naive, very innocent. His his mom was a foreign 
it, well, she was an immigrant to the to the country. She knew that her her boys played sports and was very proud, but had no concept of how good they were or weren't. Um, his sister wasn't interested in 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 hockey or sports. She was a dancer and she had her own social life. And even though she and Bill were quite close, she had no concept. And it was the Foster Hewitt. A comment that really, really gave them the idea that, oh my goodness, his name is going to be on the radio with Foster Hewitt, that they finally grasped the, the magnitude of what was about to happen, which is just so charming and, and innocent in its own way. But yeah, they, they're, they were exactly that. It's so funny. So let me go back as well, just a sidebar. Bill played in the Pacific Coast Hockey League. So did his brother Alex, although they didn't play on the same team. Alex played for the Oakland Oaks. So they were both in California. They would play against each other occasionally. But because they were fairly close, although Alex was a little bit older, um, they would get a chance to to socialize a fair bit too. So it was a great opportunity for both of the Barocco boys to uh, to be together playing hockey in California, albeit on different teams. Sure, and so he does. He finally gets called up. So did he think when he was being called up that he was going to Toronto? Is the story about him thinking that he was actually going to Pittsburgh? Is there a story there? Yeah, that's exactly true. In fact, I jumped a step there. So it was an unusual time where it just seemed like tumbling dominoes. Um, the Leafs were short of defense help to the point where they had some injuries and they had put Bud Poyle, who was uh, one of their forwards, back on the blue line. They had called down to the American Hockey League, to the Pittsburgh Hornets, to see if they could get some help there. But Pittsburgh was also short of defensemen at the time and, and couldn't... Uh, I was going to say sacrifice, that's not the term, but but couldn't uh, allow uh, one of their, their key players to move up to the Leafs. So they called down to Tulsa, same story. They were short as well. So they had to go down four leagues. They had to go down to Hollywood. And in fact, the, the team called down to Hollywood and said, listen, we, we need... We need a, a defenseman for three or four games, nothing more than that, just somebody who can fill in a spot, probably not going to play a great deal, and uh, but just to, to fill us in until some of our boys come back. And that's when this Tommy Anderson, Cowboy Anderson that I referenced earlier, said, well, listen, we got a guy here, you know, and, and his quote was, he's green as the hills, but he'll certainly uh, give you a good effort and, and he won't embarrass you. So we've got a guy named Bill Barocco here. He's a good body checker. He's a good defensive defenseman. Uh, he's someone I think that you could use, should use. But it actually started with Pittsburgh. He was going to go to Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh was going to send somebody up to the Leafs at that point. It wasn't until he got to Pittsburgh that he realized that he was to, to continue his trip and, and head off to, uh, to Toronto at that point. And he goes to to Pittsburgh, and he actually lands uh, through a storm. He actually jumps on a plane. He goes to Buffalo, gets to Buffalo, and you have to think about how naive Bill was. And as I mentioned, his his forays outside of Timmins were few and far between. He jumps in a taxi in Buffalo and says, "Take me to Toronto." The bus, uh, the uh, taxi driver rubbed his hands together, and said, "You betcha!" You know, he could see a huge payday <laughs> that way, and and they drove from Buffalo into Toronto, which is about an hour and a half drive, and and. Uh, Bill went straight to Toronto and straight to Varsity Arena, which is where the Leafs practiced at the time, dressed and stepped into the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, practice lineup and was ready for the game against Montreal uh, that weekend. And that game was in Montreal, and then they come back and they play a game in Toronto against the Bruins. They beat the Bruins 5-2, to two, and this kid, Bill Barilko, 19 years old, scores a goal in his first ever home game. So he makes a great impression right away. Well, he sure does. But even let me step back to that first game against Montreal. 
Toronto got lambasted that uh, that game. I can't remember the score off the top of my head, but it was something along the lines of seven to two. But Barocco was the star of the Leafs team because he used that body checking prowess that he had, knocked Butch Bouchard on his behind, Elmer Locke, uh, Maurice Richard, some of the stars of the game. So he was noticed for that. He wasn't afraid to to hit these guys. So here's this this Busher, this 19 year old kid, knocking some of the biggest stars of the game. Even to this day, we look back at them as Hall of Fame and how great they were. So Bill made his mark immediately in his very first game, coming back to Toronto, as you said. He belted Milt Schmidt to the ice, again, one of the great stars of the game, and scored a goal. So all of a sudden, three or four games, which is what it was supposed to be, extended itself. And as we jump ahead in the story to what we previously said, three or four games became five seasons and four Stanley Cup championships. Again, it's unprecedented and unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's really incredible. So his career gets off to this great start. Tell me about his early days with Toronto. And like you said, he was a real bruiser. And his toughness really (laughs) showed on the ice, especially during the playoffs that first year. So what were the strengths of his game? What kind of skater was he? And you mentioned Elmer Locke. He called him the hardest hitter in the league. Uh, I mean, he just makes this remarkable impression when he's only supposed to be up there for the proverbial cup of coffee. Right, exactly. Well, again, I'm going to go back to that very, very first practice at Varsity Arena. He steps onto the ice. He doesn't know to be modest and demure as a rookie. He steps on the ice and, hey, guys, I'm here. And, you know, and everybody kind of, what? Who the hell is this guy? And what the hell is he on about? They're in practice that day, and he's belting his his teammates. Finally, finally, Hap Day has to come over and say, "Look at Bill. These are your teammates. <laughs> you can hit them, but not don't put them through the boards for goodness sake." So they had their own code. When Bill was going to body check one of his teammates, he did a road runner, meep meep, and and uh, they would know that okay, you know, recoil, be prepared. Barocco's about to hit you, and it became a bit of a joke with him. But he did pull it back with his teammates. He just didn't know any better at the time. It was his game. Bill was an adequate skater. It was something that he never ever excelled at. He was a he was good enough to play certainly, but that wasn't the strength of his game. His game was defensive defenseman. He was a body checker, a shot blocker, and when he was paired with Garth Bush on the blue line, the two of them were almost impenetrable. They were just that good, and and Bill would body check you and and dish the puck up the ice and go on from there. So it was a tremendous time both for Bill and for the Toronto Maple Leafs. You have to think that uh, Jim Thompson and Gus Mortson were the other defense pair for the Leafs at that time. So, you know, you talk about the uh, the Montreal Canadiens of the 1970s with their big three. Well, Toronto had something very, very similar with uh, Thompson, Mortson, Barilko, and and Bush. And then for a fifth defenseman, they had Wally Stanowski, who was no slouch either, and had certainly been with the team for some time and, and was a tremendous defenseman. So the dynasty had begun with these young players growing together, I'll run the parallel to the Edmonton Oilers of the 1980s, just that they were young guys, they they partied together, they socialized together, you know, every Monday was was going out dancing together with their wives or partners, uh, they would go over to the homes of some of the veterans, Harry Watson and Ted Kennedy, and, and all socialized there together, they really were a tight, tight-knit group, and uh, on the ice, they were a terrific team, as, as we've talked a couple of times, four Stanley Cup championships in five years. What kind of influence did Hap Day have on Bill Barilko, especially when it came to skating? 
So Hap Day's game, when he was a player, he was a, he was a tremendous, well, he started off as a forward and then went to be a defenseman too. But as a coach, he was defense first. He, he was the one who put in, they, they certainly didn't call it that, but they, they uh, put in traps and things to, uh, to stop the, uh, the high-flying Montreal Canadiens and the Detroit Red Wings of the time. And, and uh, well, certainly the other teams were no slouches either. He, it was defense first. Uh, he had some great forwards, obviously, who could put the puck in the net. And, you know, Apps and Kennedy and Bentley as your, four, as your three centers, rather, were, were uh, tremendous. But uh, it was a defensive system that he had. And, and you know, sometimes they balked against it, but it was perfect for the kind of game that the, the team was fashioned about and certainly great for Bill Barilko as well. If you were to compare Bill Barilko to a player of today so people could get a picture of what kind of player he was, who would, who would come to mind? Oh, boy, that's a great question. Oh, that's a great question, and I don't have an answer for it, I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say. You know, he didn't, he didn't have a booming shot, so you can't talk about the Shea Webers. He, he wasn't a dipsy-doodle guy, so you can't uh, reflect the P.K. Subban, for example. He was just a, a basically a stay-at-home guy who would do the job and, and, uh, and uh, move the puck up the ice and be satisfied to let his forwards take it from there. But I don't have one person. Jeez. Do you have a thought, perhaps, that... Uh, Madonna? Oh, that's a good one. That's a very good one. Bill wasn't a leader on the team the same sort of way, although he certainly was a very, very popular guy. But on the ice, they had similar games. So, yeah, that's a great parallel. Terrific idea. Okay. Well, I got one in there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Very good. You know, we, we, we've talked about all the championships, and winning back-to-back championships is an incredible accomplishment. Winning three straight, especially these days, next to impossible. Yet, that's what the Leafs did during Bill's first three years in the NHL. They won three straight Stanley Cup championships. Tell us a little bit about those three years and just how good the Leafs were. And as you had just mentioned about being a leader, is it true, the the statement by King Clancy, as goes Barilko, so goes the Leafs? Were the Leafs really Bill Barilko's team? Well, in some ways they were. You have to remember that they had guys like uh, like uh, Ted Kennedy, who you know was one of the great leaders of of NHL history. He was on the team, wasn't that much older than Bill either, but it was really Ted Kennedy's team. But but Barilko was a, such a large part of it because he was he was that happy go lucky guy. He was the guy that said, "Hey, come on, guys, let's all go to the movies," and they would all go to the movies, or most of them would, or. Hey guys, let's go down to France and and have a bite to eat. Or I guess it probably was maybe it was France, but Bulls Eatery or or whatever at the time. And they would all go for a bite to eat, and it was just that kind of thing where he was a bit of an opinion leader within the team. And they and he was very popular, and and uh, his requests for public appearances were right up there with the the stars, the bigger stars of the team as well. So you know, I mean, Ted Kennedy was the the on ice leader with the C. Uh, Harry Watson was was a little bit older, had been around quite a bit too, and he and his wife were the the the, uh, the the couple, I guess, that would often have people over to their home, or if there was something that needed to be talked about, Harry Watson might take uh, Bill aside and, hey, listen, Bill, you got to slow down on the dating scene or whatever it happens to be, and it was that kind of thing, but Bill was was definitely right up there with the uh, the leaders on the team. Never meant to be. He certainly wasn't a leader by by birth, 
he had never really been a leader all the way through, but just one of those things that that uh, you assume as time goes on. I think once that he had established himself as an NHLer fairly early in that first season, uh, people respected what he did, uh, respected him for what he did on the ice as well, and just loved the fact that he was happy-go-lucky and and uh, and laissez-faire and and went from there. It caused a little problem in the in the 1950-51 season. I think he was, you know, we have to read between the lines a little bit here, and, and I don't want to necessarily cover him with uh, any kind of a shadow, but he was dating a great deal and, and uh, you know, spending a great deal of time off the ice in social situations. And there was a time where, at that point, Joe Primo was the uh, the coach and Hap Day, the, the general manager, or the, I guess, by title, assistant general manager. Con Smythe still had the title. But um, but they sat him down and, and uh, had to talk to him and say, look at Bill your play on the ice is being reflected by what you're doing off the ice. And I think maybe some time in Pittsburgh might, uh, you know, might be good for you and, wow. and for the Leafs at this point. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I know some of his teammates had to, uh, to sit him down and, you know, it, it certainly wasn't an intervention. It wasn't that bad, but it was just one of those situations where his game was, was suffering. And most people attributed it to the fact that he was, uh, you know, he was, a very active dater and a very active so it was very active socially as well and doing lots of public appearances and things of that sort too and and so he he pulled it back a little bit and then of course went on and had uh he stayed with the team and and had a terrific end to the season and we know what he did in the playoffs that year as well sure so you know perhaps you know as you had said he left everything out on the ice which could have also led to the fact you don't always have to be the vocal leader but the way you play you're a leader yeah. that way too. What happened the fourth? That's exactly what it was. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. What What happened that fourth year, nineteen forty nine fifty? The Leafs had just won three straight Stanley Cups, and forty nine fifty wasn't wasn't as good a year. What happened? Well, it's so tough to say too. I mean, there are a lot of things that uh, that change with the team, the dynamics of the team as well. Um, Sil Apps had had retired by this point too, and they lost that veteran leadership and. He was a strong, uh, vocal at times, but just again, he's just a strong leader. You know that uh, that no nonsense, no drinking, no smoking, no messing around. Uh, you know, just a, a one of those true elite citizens. Uh, no longer with the team, and you know that kind of thing hurts too. Um, you know, Garth Bush was with the team, but he was about to retire as well. He was going to go back to being a farmer out west, and so I mean things were changing slowly but surely. Other teams were finding their their feet as well to compete against the team too, but it was a it was a tough time for sure, and and there was fear that they were going to miss the playoffs. They actually ended up in third place and and went into the playoffs playing against Detroit Red Wings, and they they still feel that if it wasn't for uh, for a bit of a fluke that they could have won a, a fifth Stanley Cup in a row. Um, but in fact, Detroit won that semifinal. Uh, Pete Babando went on to to win the Stanley Cup winning goal that year. Pete was a buddy of of the Broco families, more with his brother Alex than with Bill, but he uh, he was one of the boys from Timmins, and they all kind of socialized together too. So the spotlight really was on Northern Ontario and on Timmins, Ontario at that particular time. But, yeah, the team just uh, going through its own evolution, as teams do, and and uh, and they they were able to obviously circumvent things the next season and come back. But it was a, it was a tough year for sure. Sure. You know, Bill's career, albeit tragically cut short, it was a marvelous career. 
when you look at that he just played five seasons, wins four Stanley Cups, there's guys who play for years and years and years, and they never even get to a Stanley Cup final. Yet he plays for five years, he wins four times. The Leafs were the dominant team of that era. What made them so special? You know, it was that camaraderie, I believe, both on and off the ice. I mean, they were really, really close-knit. It wasn't like they would go their own way um, after the games and then come back for practice, get come back for the games. I mean, they, they all went for lunch afterwards. They all went for dinners afterwards. They went dancing, as I said, together. They, if there were problems, they worked it out on their own. Half day was, was terrific, so was Joe Primo, if need be. But they really worked out d- uh, dilemmas on their own, if there were any challenges at all. And it was guys like I mentioned earlier, Harry Watts and Ted Kennedy, earlier on still apps as well, who, uh, who played that role. But it was just, you know, you, you have to think about the scouting at the time, too. So the Leafs were blessed in many ways, but the Leafs were blessed. They, they had a, a head scout who was very, very good, but they also had these bird dogs, these unofficial scouts who, who would report top players to the head scout. And they had these bird dogs right across the country. And they also had something that was very peculiar. They had a farm team, not a farm team, a junior affiliate called the St. Michael's Majors, a junior A hockey team. And it was a a Roman Catholic uh, private school. So every priest across the country, in fact, became a bird dog. Every priest wanted to to, uh, give one of his better hockey players the opportunity to get a free education and go to Toronto. So between these bird dogs that were unofficial and these priests, all of a sudden, a great influx of talent was coming to the Toronto Maple Leafs at that time. Now, the Montreal Canadiens had a terrific network as well. Um, but, you know, there were teams like, to a lesser degree, um, the New York Rangers and the Boston Bruins, who just didn't have the capacity to have that same kind of, of network to, uh, to find talent. This was long before the draft. So this was all about, uh, about signing players to the, the dreaded C-forms, B-forms, and A-forms that... Uh, would uh, indenture players to the team for basically for life or until the team decided to to move them out at that point. So we've mentioned Timmins in Northern Ontario a number of times. That was a, a hotbed for hockey at the yeah, time. Yeah, I guess so. I'm not exact- yeah, I'm not exactly sure why, whether it was because it was an extended winter so the players got to play more, but it just seemed like there were so many players that came out of Northern Ontario at that particular time. And and, uh, and so Bill Barilko was one of those those players. The, the scouts were in Northern Ontario a great deal because of the, the, the number of players that came from that area. So Bill was the recipient of that, the Toronto Maple Leafs recipient of him and so many others who came to play for the team at that time. But they had terrific, terrific strength down the middle. Silaps while he was with the team, Ted Kennedy, Max Bentley, all three Hall of Famers, you know, are, are the centers for the team. Uh, the, the defense corps that we mentioned before, Thompson and Mortson, Bush and Barilko, and then Stanowski as a as a, a fifth defenseman in the 1950-51 season. They had Fern Flamen, who en- ends up going to the Hall of Fame. Bill Juista as well, who was a really tough defenseman too, as a uh, as a fifth defenseman. So they had a terrific defense corps. Turk Broda was towards the end of his career, but he was one of the great goaltenders of our time as well, and a real money goaltender too. So when it came to the playoffs, there wasn't a puck that was going to go in that net if, if he could possibly help it. So between all of these things, a young team that grew together, a, a, a terrific ambiance around the team, great management, great ownership, there was just so many things that played into it at that particular time and formed the Toronto Maple Leafs dynasty of the late 40s and early 50s. 
much in the way the Islanders formed their dynasty and the Oilers formed their dynasty, teams that uh, had this phenomenal nucleus and were able to keep that nucleus together, and they just appeared to look like they had a great time together. Yeah, very much so. You're absolutely right about the Islanders and Oilers, Oilers rather, that's for sure. So for those people listening to this podcast who are not familiar with the game of hockey in the 40s and 50s, the sports we play, the sports we love to watch, the games evolve over time and they change. What's the major difference between the game we watch today and the game that Barilko play? And why was Barilko's game made for that game, for that time period? Huh. That's a great, great question. Well, just on the surface, you have to think about how different the game was back then, too. You have to think that the equipment was different. The rules were were a little bit, uh, a little bit more, um, a little bit more rudimentary, I guess I should say. Um, the game was slower. There wasn't the marketing that was tied to it. Uh, there was no, there was no media that was was camouflaging everything that goes on and at that time. I mean, TV hadn't even well, TV had come into prominence, but uh, but hockey wasn't even covered until 1952. So that was after Bill Barocco's career was over. Um, you know, the radio was the big thing at that particular time and, and helped form Leafs Nation. So it was an entirely, entirely different game, too. As I mentioned, Hap Day had uh, formed his team around, certainly a team that could score, but they were a defense-oriented team, too. And and so that really played into what Barocco and his uh, his teammates could do. It was a slower game. Uh, the, you know, the players played, instead of 30, 40-second shifts, they were playing well, two, three minutes. Wow. Um, it was... Yeah, I mean, it was just like that. So you you certainly had to have uh, have great fitness, even though training camp was probably just two or three weeks beforehand and doing some push-ups and sit-ups and a few things like that. I mean, the, the photos we see of training camp back in the day are, are pretty ludicrous compared to what players go through today. You know, it was a... It was a uh, today. It's a, a twelve-month sport. Back then, you took your summers off. You you relaxed. You didn't go near your skates. You might uh, you might play some tennis, maybe a little baseball, something like that, just to keep in shape a little bit. But training camp was meant for you to get back into shape. So, an entirely different game. But for a guy like Barocco, who was in good shape at that time, who who played the defensive game that his coach wanted to as well, who who didn't have to worry about, you know, certainly he had a lot of public appearances, but uh, he didn't have to worry about uh, TV cameras in his face uh, after every time he goes near the rink or near a shopping center or whatever it happened to be. It wasn't like that at all. Just a, it's a, an era that's completely, completely different to what we uh, would know today. And, and so Bill played into that. The Toronto Maple Leafs played into it as well and, and were very successful, both Barilko and his team. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we'll recall Bill Barilko's backhander in overtime of Game 5 of the 1951 Stanley Cup Championship that clinched the cup for the Maple Leafs, making Barilko the toast of the town. Unfortunately, though, it was to be the final goal, the final play of Bill Barilko's career. We'll take a look back at that series and the tragedy that followed. A big thank you to my guest, Kevin Shea, author of Barilko. For more on Kevin and for more on Sports Forgotten Heroes, please visit sportsfh.com. That's sportsfh.com. Also, if you would like to become a sponsor of Sports Forgotten Heroes or to just show your support, please visit our page on patreon.com at p-a-t-r-e-o-n 
facebook.com backslash sports FH. You could even learn how to ask a question of a future guest. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash sports FH. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at Sports F Heroes or on our page on Facebook, Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.